Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This podcast, normally explicit, is not so today. It's Monday, August 1st, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And though today may be the Manic Monday of Bengal song, yesterday was a Mansion Sunday. We go now to West Virginia Democrat Joe Manchin. Senator, welcome. I hope you're feeling better from the COVID. Uh, and joining me now is Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia. Senator Manchin, welcome back to Meet the Press. Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia joins us now to discuss. Uh, Senator, thanks so much for joining us. So 16 days ago, you said... The most important man in Washington was all over the airwaves touting his support for the Inflation Reduction Act. He was asked such good questions as, will it really reduce inflation? He said it would. Will Senator Cinema be on board? I sure hope so, he said. On ABC's This Week This Week, Jonathan Carl quoted Bernie Sanders as saying, Lest I heard, Senator Manchin is not the majority leader. Though Jonathan Carl didn't do the voice, that, my friends, is the gist difference. But when asked overall, do you realize that everyone in Washington, D.C. got mad at you? Senator Manchin seemed to unconsciously acknowledge as much. We start making adjustments to make sure it wasn't inflammatory. He meant inflationary or not inflationary. On Fox News Sunday, anchor Brett Baer pulled out an old tape of Manchin predicting that the last big spending bill wouldn't cause inflation and had Manchin answer for his mistakes back then. I made sure I don't make that mistake again. That's the bottom line. I make sure I didn't make that mistake again. On Meet the Press, Manchin met Chuck Todd, who, yes, pressed him on which party the Democrat from West Virginia would like to see win the midterms. What's your case for Democrats to keep control of the House and Senate this election year? Manchin gave a rambling non-answer. Chuck tried again. Do you hope Democrats keep control of the House and Senate? Chuck tried three or four more times to get the Democrat from West Virginia to answer if he favored the Democrats. What result do you want? (laughs) Do you want the Democrats to keep control of the United States Senate and the House of Representatives? Manchin would not go there. I think people are sick and tired of politics, Chuck. I really do. Manchin did go to CNN, State of the Union, where there was some evidence that his grilling by Chuck Todd may have caused some PTSD. You said 16 days ago, you said you wanted to wait to pass any major legislation because of what you called an alarming new 9.1% inflation rate. Inflation has not gone down in those 16 days. What changed your mind? Well, Jake, basically what changed our minds, Chuck, uh, we re-engaged. I, to Chuck's credit, we started. Senator Chuck Manchin, st- wait, sorry, Senator Jake Manchin and God, Joe Manchin 
had set answers for every question he was asked. I could save you about an hour of, maybe an hour and a half of cumulative Joe Manchin viewing time by telling you, no, it doesn't buy that the Wharton School says the bill's really inflationary. No, it's not a tax. No, it doesn't really care about the environment, but damn it, does he care about energy? And yeah, Kirsten Cinema, she's a sharp, sharp lady. And also inflation reduction. And as to the question of 2024 and the pre- inflation reduction, also when it comes to the midterms, inflation reduction, was he a team Samantha or a team Carrie? odd question, but the answer is inflation reduction. And if Senator Manchin were on a desert island, could only have 10 songs, what would they be? He answered, I'd have to go with inflation reduction. And then he yelled, thanks, Chuck, threw a smoke grenade and rappelled to the ceiling in a cloud of smoke that eventually dissipated as it rose. Why inflation reduction? I know you're doing the round of shows today, but just to remind you, I'm, about, you're, I'm Jake, well, not Chuck. Um, but, uh... On the show today, I spiel about the unintended consequence of the Dobbs decision. But first, for all the issues affecting women's lives and women's health and women's rights in our society, you don't hear that much anymore about the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment. And so I wonder if looking back, experts now say that, yes, it really would have made a difference. It turns out when I said you don't hear that much about the ERA, I don't hear that much about the ERA. In some circles, the ERA is like the Faulknerian past. It's not forgotten. It's not even past. Although, in a weird linguistic twist, they actually think it did pass. We'll get to that. We'll get to how important and effective the ERA could be. And I couldn't ask for a better guest than Cardoza Law Professor and ABC legal analyst Kate Shaw. ERA Talk up next. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. The quality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. Okay, that seems like a good idea. In fact, it is one of three and really the powerful clause of the Equal Rights Amendment. I've got news about the Equal Rights Amendment. There are a lot of people, smart people right now teaching in law schools, Ivy League law schools in some cases, who believe the Equal Rights Amendment exists, that it's actually an amendment to the Constitution, if only we'd admit it. I got fascinated by the Equal Rights Amendment in recent days. I came across a YouTube discussion uh, led by Kate Shaw, and I had to have her on to talk about what the amendment is, if it really is an amendment right now, and why there is not more agitating for it. Kate Shaw is a professor of law and co-director of the Florsheimer Center for Constitutional Democracy at Cardoza Law School and an ABC legal news analyst. And this is most important, one of the co-hosts of the Strict Scrutiny podcast, which I love. Kate, welcome to The Gist. Mike, thanks so much for having me. So before we get into what it is, just tell me or... Or resolve this, uh, res- resolve this cognitive dissonance. I thought the whole point of looking back at the Equal Rights Amendment is say, isn't it a shame that it didn't pass? People are telling me it did pass? What? 
You know, it's kind of a metaphysical question. Is it or is it not already a part of the Constitution? So maybe I'll take a step back and sort of walk through the history, sort of how we even got to this point where there is a genuine and I think unresolved question about whether we already have an equal rights amendment. We just need to recognize it. So the idea that the Constitution should protect the rights of women, you know, is arguably traceable to like the Declaration of Sentiments at Seneca Falls in 1848, right? This goes way, way back. you know, in the 20s, the 1920s, there actually was the initial introduction of an equal rights amendment um, that would explicitly protect against discrimination on the basis of sex. Um, that fails in part, actually, because a lot of women's organizations oppose it because they're actually worried that it will invalidate a lot of protective legislation. So there were laws on the books basically protecting women um, against certain kinds of labor exploitation. And so the, the worry was that those laws would be invalidated. But in any event, that first iteration of the Equal Rights Amendment fails. The version that may or may not be part of the Constitution already today is introduced in Congress in 1970, and it passes both House of, Houses of Congress in 1972. Um, and you know, just for folks who aren't familiar with this, the process of amending the Constitution requires first that a proposed amendment pass each House of Congress with a very large supermajority, two-thirds in each House, and then it has to get ratified by three-quarters of the states. So it's a hard process, right? Getting supermajorities in both houses and then, you know, a big supermajority in the states. And right. we haven't we haven't done it a lot of times. And, so, I'll, and I'll interrupt you and yeah. provide for my listeners the math that I know I was thinking of when this was mentioned. Three-quarters of the states is 38 states. It's tough when 50 doesn't divide by four, but that's the threshold. <laughs> exactly. So we round to, we round to 38. Um, so... 72, the approved Equal Rights Amendment goes to the states for ratification, and it is initially barreling toward ratification. So within a year, 30 of the required 38 states have ratified it, and then things start to slow down. So we get to like 1975, and just 35 of the required 38 states have ratified the Equal Rights Amendment. Now, the original bill that Congress passed along with the text of the Equal Rights Amendment had a deadline for ratification in it, and that deadline was seven years, so it would have, you know, the ratification initially had to happen by 1979. But as we're getting close to 79 and Congress realizes we're a little bit short of this deadline, it extends the deadline to 83. Um, Sorry, it extends the deadline to 1982, so by three years. Um, But there are no more ratifications. So we actually stay stalled at 35 for like 30 years. Um, And there's a whole story about kind of what the backlash that led to the kind of grinding to a halt of the ratification that we could get into. But in terms of sort of fast forwarding to the kind of present day, um, in... 2017, basically, we see this kind of revival of interest in ratifying the ERA. It actually, the roots are earlier than that, but we actually see the first new kind of modern day ratification in 2017. So Nevada ratifies the ERA. So all of a sudden we're at 36. And then in 2018, Illinois ratifies. So then we're at 37. And in 2020, just over two years ago, Virginia ratifies the ERA. So it becomes the 38th state. Um, And so if what the Constitution requires for ratification is 38 states, then arguably we are there. We have had a 28th Amendment, which is the Equal Rights Amendment to the Constitution for two and a half years. But the political branches of government, like Congress, the executive branch, um, haven't recognized that it is now a part of the Constitution. And there is an executive branch official, the archivist of the United States, the head of the National Archives, who has the kind of 
ministerial function of like mm-hmm. certifying an amendment. And so far that certification hasn't happened. But of course that person can't be the person who makes the ultimate decision for, you know, we the people, what's in the constitution. So anyway, that's kind of, I'll end where you started, which is like, it's actually not at all clear whether it's already a part of the constitution. Yeah. I mean, when I go to the constitutional center and I get my, uh, my, uh, tourist constitution on the crinkly parchment that they sell there. I notice it's not there as the 28th amendment. That's a bit, that, that's what nails it for me. <laughs> not that, not that Deborah Steidel wall made, or who is the acting archivist of the United States as of a few months ago made or didn't make a decision. Um, and just to go back, you know, you said, arguably it is, uh, a, an amendment to the constitution. I guess we could argue anything. It would seem to me that the deadline, the explicit deadline that wasn't extended should shut down debate on this issue. No, I, I don't know that it totally shuts down debate, honestly. I mean, I guess there's there's a couple of questions. What's the right answer and who decides, right? So, you know, there was, so the deadline was initially put into the, not the actual amendment, but a bill attached to the amendment, which may or may not make a difference. But there was a deadline and then there was an extended deadline. And there are people who argue that there's actually not any that the deadline itself is of questionable constitutional status, that the Constitution itself just says, here's what you have to do to get an amendment passed. doesn't right. say anything about timelines. Yeah, and so yeah is that's, it, a good, is, that's a good is, argument. Like, it, can anything be more unconstitutional than a law saying we're going to ignore what the Constitution lays out about the rules of adopting an amendment for the Constitution? Well, that, that's sort of the logic. The same way Congress couldn't pass just a regular statute that says, yeah, instead of, you know, three-fourths, we need nine-tenths of the states, so yes. too can it not pass an amendment that says it has to happen within a set period of time. And indeed, the 27th Amendment was, which is part of what gave rise to the kind of revival of interest in the 28th Amendment, was sort of picked back up after partial ratification and then ratified it, you know, in 92, like 200 years after its original introduction. And people, you know, advocates of the ERA already being in the Constitution sort of point to that as support for the possibility of reviving a long dormant amendment, even when the ratification process is underway. Now, there was no deadline written into the 27th. So that's potentially a distinction. But the deadline itself, I think, doesn't definitively resolve the status of the amendment. And what would it do that the the Equal Protection Clause in the Constitution doesn't do already? Well, and so you're right, of course, the Equal Protection Clause in the 14th Amendment um, has been interpreted by courts to protect to a degree against discrimination on the basis of sex. It didn't always um, get understood that way by courts, right? The original, the 14th Amendment, is passed in 1868, obviously in the wake of the Civil War, and its primary purpose is to outlaw discrimination on the basis of race. And in fact, actually, some early kind of, you know, feminists and suffragists had hoped that the 14th Amendment would actually explicitly protect against sex discrimination. So, um, and that failed. And actually another part of the 14th Amendment, not the Equal Protection Clause, for the first time writes the word male into the Constitution. So it's a total failure to get <laughs> Always sex strongly dis- employed at that point, right. up to that point. <laughs> right, right. Strongly implied, but yes, but that's explicit there in, in, in Section 2 of the 14th Amendment. Um, but so anyway, so that kind of explicit drafting effort fails, but um, an effort to get the courts to interpret the broad equality guarantee of the 14th Amendment to also include sex equality is successful in the courts. In a series of cases, the court does find that the Equal Protection Clause, right, does prohibit sex discrimination. But the court sort of stops short of basically saying discrimination on the basis of sex is, for constitutional purposes, you know, 
interchangeable with discrimination on the basis of race. The court basically says, well, sex and race are different. So race discrimination is subject to the most searching constitutional scrutiny and will basically never survive or almost never survive. Sex discrimination, eh, you know, the court talks about biological differences between men and women and says, you know, we're going to use something called intermediate scrutiny as opposed to strict scrutiny to you know, review laws that discriminate on the basis of sex. So the point is there's a little bit of a tiered kind of hierarchy, right, of rights or, you know, anti-discrimination uh, rights that the court's interpretation of the Equal Protection Clause has led to. And the idea is actually enshrining sex equality in the Constitution would mean that, you know, s- discrimination on the basis of sex would also be subject to the strictest kind of constitutional scrutiny, just like race discrimination. So that's that's, I think, one part of it. Right. Um, These tiers of scrutiny, it would make sex as scrutinized as race. The problem with that is, I'll let you get to the second part. As you know, I can't believe I'm telling you this. I'm telling my audience this is that especially the current Supreme Court looks at the strict scrutiny of race and they don't really make a distinction between uh, among which are the races involved. So they apply the idea of equality either to entrench racism or remediate racism. So does it really matter if they're using strict scrutiny if, you know, a white person can bring a case and say, I'm discriminated against by this affirmative action law uh, under the ERA? Couldn't a man bring a case and say, basis of sex, I'm one of the sexes. You can't have set-asides for women. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's so. So it's a very good point. This, you know, very conservative supermajority on the Supreme Court basically says that, you know, or is poised to say they all they haven't all weighed in on this because some of them have only been on the Supreme Court for a very short time. But it's pretty clear they're going to say something like discrimination, invidious discrimination, right? Discrimination that is designed to entrench white supremacy is constitutionally indistinguishable from discrimination. I'm putting that in air quotes designed to ameliorate historical injustices, to promote classroom diversity, right? Basically that, you know, actual, say, racist hiring practices and affirmative action in higher education are constitutionally indistinguishable. Right. So they basically have been much more receptive to discrimination claims brought by white plaintiffs than discrimination brought by plaintiffs of color. So that's um, it's, I think, very fair to surmise that if you did enshrine sex equality in the Constitution in the form of the Equal Rights Amendment, you know, men might be successful in bringing challenges to things like, say, protection against discrimination on the basis of pregnancy, um, you know, sort of things like that. So I think I think it is possible. I think, and I think that actually goes back to your question about the phrasing of the current version of the Equal Rights Amendment. I mean, I think that's true. The the concern that these equality guarantees can be you know, leveraged not just by individuals who are historically discriminated against, but by individuals who are members of, you know, majority groups and historically powerful parties. Um, That's, I think, true under current doctrine and I think could be true under the Equal Rights Amendment. And that's why I actually think what's... um, What's another important part of the ERA that you were, I think, starting to allude to is that there's this provision that basically says that Congress can, you know, implement the provisions of this amendment by appropriate legislation. And, you know, that language exists in other constitutional amendments, too. It's in the 14th Amendment. But I think the idea here is that it would be a constitutional basis for Congress affirmatively to actually take steps to legislate things that actually have not really been legislated, things like, you know, family leave, genuine and robust pregnancy discrimination. There is a federal statute that prohibits pregnancy discrimination, but it's been very narrowly construed by the courts. Um, So, you know, affirmative legislation to 
you know, actually bring about full kind of social and political and economic equality of women, um, this would be a constitutional basis for Congress to do that. So in, for some advocates, that's actually what's more important than the way it might change these tiers of scrutiny that courts use to evaluate discrimination claims. It would be an affirmative grant of authority that Congress would and maybe would be required to act upon. Right. But there was nothing stopping Congress from doing all this except for by having, say, paid family leave, except they didn't want to do it. They There was never a majority that uh, could survive a veto uh, by the president that would prompt Congress to cast those votes. I mean, that's basically true, but it actually is the case that, you know, Congress always has to have a constitutional basis on which to legislate. And at some time, at some points when it has tried to legislate, sort of in this sphere, let me give you an example, um, a provision of the Violence Against Women Act that created a private right of action for individuals to sue um, those who perpetrated gender or sexual violence against them. And the court struck that down, that private right of action in the Violence Against Women Act. It left other parts of the statute um, intact. Um, and the basis, so Congress had passed that law, that private right of action, under the Commerce Clause, the part of the Constitution that gives Congress the power to regulate interstate commerce. And that's a little bit of an odd basis, if you think about it. For, but Congress basically said, look, domestic violence, violence against women actually has like enormous you know, costs in the billions if we got to actually quantify it. And so there's an economic co sort of commercial case for giving this private right of action because states aren't taking sufficient steps to actually address violence against women. And the court basically struck that down and said, well, the Commerce Clause actually doesn't give Congress the authority to enact this legislation. So that's this is a little in the constitutional law weeds. But the idea is actually, yes, the political obstacles have been real, but there have also been constitutional obstacles that the court has at least imposed um, on Congress actually passing some big sweeping sort of gender related legislation that this, you know, might actually provide a stronger foundation for. And tomorrow, as I continue with Kate, we'll come back to the idea that there already is an ERA and you might not believe how that's affecting the decisions and strategy of activists. And now the spiel. Conservatives are always talking about the law of unintended consequences. Really far-right guys like Congressman Chip Roy here on the OAN network talking about COVID restrictions in 2021. To look at all of the unintended or frankly, maybe for some intended consequences. And more moderate conservatives talk about it as well. Thoughtful conservatives like Matthew Continetti here being interviewed by Jonah Goldberg, again, citing this law. There's this deep insight into the unintended consequences of social action. Is it a law? It's not describing something that's inevitable, like the law of gravity. It's not a law with inputs and variables where you could predict outcomes like Ricardo's law of wages. By the way, the iron law of wages is what they call that. Or even the law of diminishing returns. It seems like the kind of law that sometimes happens and sometimes doesn't, like, I don't know, the law in Haiti or something. And also the idea that consequences will always be negative. They'll always be downside consequences. Why is that? If the consequences are unintended, wouldn't they be randomly distributed? Some could positively surprise us, but ones that don't occur with abortion. 
There are laws of unintended consequences happening right now with the enactment of Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health. Women, we were told, will be forced to give birth. Women, we were told, will have the health consequences that come with back alley abortions performed with wire hangers. Indeed, the hanger was the symbol of protesters, even outside the justice's house to this day. But the real consequences, seldom, though not never foretold, are all these horror stories happening now about pregnant women in states with bans essentially not being in bad enough shape to get medical interventions, almost dying, but not quite dying enough. Oh, well, life of the mother. That seems like a tidy phrase when you say it or put it in a bill, but it's a really subjective thing. And when it was the doctor who was overseeing the subjectivity therein, that's one thing. But hospital administrators overseen by review boards, overseen by legislatures with the force of law behind them, that's another thing. So many stories. Here's one in the Baton Rouge Advocate. A mother carrying a non-viable 16-week-old fetus had her water break. The fetus will not survive. The doctor wanted to perform a DNA which is very common abortion procedure to take out the not viable fetus. But the doctor consulted an attorney. The attorney advised against it. The woman was forced to go through a painful hours-long labor to deliver a non-viable fetus despite her best wishes and medical advice. According to one doctor's complaint, she talked about her patient. She was screaming, not from pain, but from the emotional trauma she was experiencing. The woman then hemorrhaged nearly a liter of blood. Quote from the affidavit this doctor put forward, there is no medical basis for my patient or any other patient in this state to experience anything like this. This was the first time in my 15-year career that I could not give a patient the care they needed. This is a travesty. The travesties continue. Today in the New York Times, a story about a young woman whose fetus had not formed a skull. Even with surgery, doctors said there'd be nothing to protect the brain. The fetus wouldn't be able to survive for hours, maybe not even minutes. But they wouldn't give the woman an abortion procedure because of the legal definition of non-viable. The most affecting story I heard on this was reported by Carrie Feibel on NPR, concerned a Texas woman named Elizabeth Weller, who had her water break at 18 weeks, meaning she was six weeks from viability, but without amniotic fluids, the fetus couldn't develop. One medical expert said it was virtually assured that Weller would miscarry, and she had significant health risks. It was a clear example of the necessity of protecting the life of the woman via an abortion procedure. But Texas did not budge. Think about this. Think of the mother, think of the fetus. Probably we can say, in all safety, there was zero chance that in a few weeks there would be two living beings between the mother and fetus. But there was a significant chance that there'd be zero living human beings. Still, Texas would not allow the procedure. Weller was told her life was not in danger enough. Go home, wait to miscarry, or wait to get a little closer to death. But, you know, let's hope not all the way there. And then, on her way out of the hospital... This happened. But as I'm leaving Methodist, I get a call from Methodist. And it's this woman who is saying, hi, Miss Weller, um, you're at the 19 week mark. So I'm here to call you to register 
for your delivery on October 5th so I can collect all your insurance information. How are you doing and are you excited for the delivery? And I just cried and screamed in the parking lot. This poor woman had no idea what she was telling me. And I told her, no, ma'am, I'm actually headed home right now because I have to await my dead baby's delivery. And she goes, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I, I, I didn't know. This is an unintended consequence. Not that OBGYNs or doctors weren't concerned or didn't know about this, but this cascade of story after story blow right through that tidy phrase, the life of the mother. There are so many stories like this. If you're paying attention, you're appalled. Many of the women profiled in these stories, by the way, are themselves against abortion, but no lives are being saved with any, and there are so many more stories like this that I could tell. Many lives, always women's lives, are being risked. We were told that women would die seeking legal abortions. I guess that was the unintended consequence we could imagine. But the truth is women have been suffering and may yet die, not from doing something illegal, but because states and hospitals refuse to give them procedures, which on the books they say are legal. When the life of the mother provision is enforced by a lawmaker or an administrator, suffering abounds. So let's go back to conservatives. Were they right to have the orientation that is suspicious of unintended consequences? I think this actually confirms the healthy suspicion of unintended consequences. But what else is going on with the Dobbs ruling, and this all tells us something about the Dobbs ruling, is that it was quite radical. It drastically upended the social order. It created risk. It was, in a sentence, not a conservative decision, even if political conservatives wanted abortion bans, because now they got them. And these bans have proved far more chaotic and harmful than what was predicted. If more of these stories are heard, even by voters predisposed to vote Republican, I think it could change minds, and that would be one consequence the conservatives never intended. And that's it for today's show. Chuck Wara is the assistant producer of The Gist. Chuck Patterson is the senior producer of The Gist. Chuck Pesca is COO of Peachfish Productions and my lovely wife, Chuck Pesca. The Gist is produced in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Jeepperoo, Dooperoo, and thanks for listening.